I'm Pastor Daryl Curtis, and you're listening to the 21st part of my sermonic review of the biblical design of gender, in which my point is that God does not give us his divinely inspired word to condemn others, but to show them the error of their ways so that they might be saved. The following is a presentation of the Family Life Baptist Church in Lansing, Michigan. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com. Well, the 18th of April is the date today. Our lesson for this morning is the 21st part of this sermon series biblical design of gender we've yet to get out of the book of genesis although we are getting closer to the end of genesis that means we only have at the end of that we only have 65 more books to go <laughs> but nevertheless our lesson for this morning is uh, our text rather for this morning is the 38th uh, the 11th verse of the 38th chapter of genesis and the bible says this then judah said to tamar his daughter-in-law remain a widow in your father's house till my son Shelah is grown. For he said, lest he also die like his brothers. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. God bless the reading of his word and let us bow our heads in a word of prayer. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you afresh for the total sufficiency of Jesus Christ, for the perfect teaching ministry of your blessed Holy Spirit, and for his ability to explain your word. So Lord, give us the words to say and let us say them with liberty, with clarity, and with boldness, and that somebody listening might believe the report. Thanking you in advance for all that you are going to do in the strong and perfect name of Jesus Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Now, thank you very much for coming to hear this message for today. Before we begin this, our next lesson, let us reiterate our reason for attending church. We attend church to obtain the mind of Christ, meaning to have the Bible illuminated in our minds so that we can clearly understand the principles that Jesus taught and base our daily personal decisions on those principles. We come to church because we want to be obedient to the Bible, which is the doctrine of Jesus Christ in an informed, insightful, an intelligent manner. Now, our takeaway point in this series on the biblical design of gender is that God has created man as the cooperative coalition of husband and wife so that man can successfully achieve the objective that God has given us to exercise dominion over the earth, developing wisdom and knowledge in preparation for further responsibility in our eternal life. Now, our last lesson chronicled the episode of Dinah and Shechem, in which the sons of Jacob killed and plundered Shechem and the men of his city because Shechem seduced their sister Dinah into sexual immorality. Now, Jacob wasn't particularly concerned with his sons or their sister. As the boys, and as the boys lacked Jacob's concerned leadership, they developed into a gang of angry, aggressive young men. The Bible record, record indicates that Joseph, Jacob's favorite son, was the only son that was not part of the gang. And this was true because of Joseph's special relationship with his father. Joseph had to suffer his brother's wrath, even as did Shechem. 
Genesis chapter 37, verse 3 and 4 records, Now Israel, that is Jacob, loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. Also, he made him a tunic of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Now, Joseph had Jacob's concern and affection because Joseph was Rachel's son and Rachel was the one woman that Jacob wanted as a wife. Jacob's father-in-law tricked him into marrying Leah. Jacob conceived children with Zilpah and Bilhah as the function of a competition between Rachel and Leah, but Jacob never wanted either one of them. So Jacob ended up fathering 10 children by three women for whom he did not care, but he had one child whom he loved by the woman that he loved. It is interesting that some 70% of sociopaths come from fatherless homes, as do 80% of the men in prison. Father absence produces many consequences similar to the symptoms of sociopathy, early precocious sexuality, an antagonistic depreciating attitude toward the opposite sex, a lack of interest in bonding with a durable, stable mate, an aggressive acting out, excessive boasting, and risk-taking behavior. Furthermore, sociopaths tend to reproduce themselves, that is, they produce more than their own fair share of illegitimate offspring, themselves. And even if the father is physically present in the home, indifference by a father is emotionally equivalent to the absence of a father. Children need the involvement of a male parent, not just his presence. As a child, would you have preferred that your father was absent from your public exhibitions of ability? Or would you rather that your father attended your exhibition but was uninterested in it. So for his sons other than Joseph, Jacob was physically there, but uninterested. Jacob's other sons participated in the activities of the family, but Jacob's love for Joseph and disinterest for the others warped them. But because of his love for Joseph, Jacob took the time to transmit his reverence for God and his ability to plan to Joseph. And after spending personal time with Joseph in dedicated religious teaching and leadership development, Jacob appointed Joseph to supervise his brothers, although Joseph was the younger of the brothers. Jacob recognized that Joseph's youth would cause his brothers to have a certain lack of respect for him. So Jacob made Joseph's job to report any of his brothers infractions of the rules back to him. Of course, this chafed the brothers. So they conspired to take out their father's lack of respect and love for them on Joseph. Joseph was on his way to Dotham to supervise his brothers who were taking care of the flock when his brothers saw him coming. Genesis 37, 19 and 20, 23 to 28 records. Then they said to one another, look, this dreamer is coming. Come, therefore, let us now kill him and cast him into some pit and we shall say some wild beast has devoured him. We will see what will become of his dreams. So it came to pass when Joseph had come to his brothers 
that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the tunic of, of many colors that was on him. Then they took him and cast him into a pit. And the pit was empty. There was no water in it. And they sat down to eat a meal. Then they lifted their eyes and looked, and there was a company of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels, bearing spices, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry them down to Egypt. So Judah said to his brothers, What profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh, and his brothers listen. Then the Midianite traders passed by, so the brothers pulled Joseph up and lifted him, lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver, and they took Joseph to Egypt. And the brothers took Joseph's tunic from him because it was a symbol of their father's lack of love for them and sold Joseph into slavery as revenge for his oversight of them. Then they dipped the tunic in lamb's blood and sent it back to Jacob. Genesis 37, 32 through 35 records. Then the brothers sent the tunic of many colors and they brought it to their father and said, We have found this. Do you know whether it is your son's tunic or not? Jacob recognized it and said, It is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Without doubt, Joseph is torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sack, put sackcloth on his waist, and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted, and he said, For I shall go down to the grave to my son in mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Now Leah's son Judah, the ringleader of the effort to get rid of Joseph, could not stand to have his father continue to focus attention on Joseph to the exclusion of himself even after Joseph was gone. So Judah left the camp and struck out on his own, as Genesis 38, 1 and 2 tells us. And it came to pass at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hiram. And Judah saw there a certain, a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he married her and went into her. Now, interestingly, the Hebrew words that the Bible uses to describe the liaison between Dinah and Shechem are almost identical to, uh, to those used by the Bible to describe the liaison between Judah and Shua's daughter. And the difference between the two experience, experiences rather, is that Jacob's son objected to Shechem's marrying Dinah, but Shua did not object to Judah marrying his daughter. And just as Esau violated Isaac's command to marry in the family because Jacob was Isaac's favorite, Judah married outside the family because Joseph was Jacob's favorite, although Jacob thought that Joseph was dead. Favoritism of parents generally causes a reaction in the children. And of the union of Judah and Shua's daughter, three sons were born, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Now the episodes fast forwards to the time when Judah's oldest son is old enough to marry, and Judah obtains Tamar as a bride for Ur. But Ur was such a bad fellow 
that the Lord killed him. So Judah, following the custom of Leverite marriage, commanded Onan to marry Tamar, impregnate her, and name the child for her. Deuteronomy 25, 5 and 6 codifies this practice, as it says, if brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside of the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as his wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn son which she bears will succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. Now it is not good for a man to be alone, and God made women for men. So God uses this statute in his law to make provisions for women who are widows to still have husbands and families. But Genesis 38, 8 through 10 records, And Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and marry her, and raise up an heir to your brother. But Onan knew that the heir would not be his. And it came to pass when he went into his brother's wife that he omitted on the ground, lest he should give an heir to his brother. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord, therefore he killed him also. So Onan refused to perform the duty of a husband to Tamar, and the Lord killed him for it. And this episode occurred during an era in which marriage, followed by childbearing and taking care of a family, was the normative case for women. A woman's status was derived from the size of and her attentiveness to her family, as we can see in the childbearing competition between Rachel and Leah, in which Leah was unloved, but derived her status from the fact that the Lord gave her seven children. Now, in this agrarian society, without the administrative and clerical jobs produced by industrialization, a woman relied upon her husband and sons to provide the material support for her. The woman, for her part, provided the emotional and domestic support for the family. And in order to function optimally, the family unit required, and actually still requires, emotional and domestic support, as well as financial. Now, before 9-11, when you could actually go to the airport, stand in the terminal, and look out the window and see planes without purchasing a ticket, a man took his son to the airport to look around. On their way to look at the planes, the father and his son passed a pilot in the terminal walking by in his suit and tie with his briefcase. Ooh, said the little boy, who is that? That's the pilot, said the father. He's the one who, who flies the plane. The little boy continued to watch the pilot until he was out of sight. Then they continued to the window to look at the plane. The little boy saw a man with a wrench with grease on his hands and face working on the plane. Who is that guy with the grease on his face after the little boy? So the father decided to teach a lesson. He's the mechanic. He's just as important as the pilot, said the father. What does he do, said the little boy? He makes sure that the plane is working right so that it doesn't crash, said the father. Without the mechanic, it wouldn't be safe for the pilot or the passengers to fly in the plane. For the plane to work properly, you need the mechanic to make sure that the plane is working correctly just as much as you need the pilot to fly the plane. 
And the same thing is true of family. Ephesians 5, 22 and 23 says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. So the husband is the pilot. He's the one that flies the plane. But if something goes wrong at 30,000 feet, the pilot can't get out and fix the plane. If the mechanic fails to do his job, the plane will crash and the pilot and all the passengers will get killed. And although the wife may not be the pilot of the family, she is no less important to the proper functioning of the family than the mechanic is to the proper functioning of the plane, which is why Ephesians 5.25 tells us, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. And since Onan failed to live up to his obligation to his wife Tamar, the Lord crashed his plane. Now, Ur and Onan are dead because of their sinfulness. But as people often do, Judah failed to properly evaluate the cause of his son's death and chose to blame the situation on Tamar as she had been married to both of them and could be accused of being the common denominator. But the fact that two things happen in succession does not necessarily mean that the first thing that happened caused the second. Tamar married Ur and he died, and then Tamar married Onan and he died, but Tamar didn't kill either one of them or cause them to be killed. Nevertheless, Judah did not want to risk his third son, Sheila. Maybe the deaths of Ur and Onan weren't Tamar's fault, but why take a chance? Our text, Genesis 38, 11, tells us, Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till my son Sheila is grown, for he said, lest he also die like his brothers. And Tamar went down and dwelt in her father's house. Fortunately, thought Judah, Sheila was too young to marry Tamar. And maybe by the time Sheila is old enough to marry, something might happen to Tamar. So Tamar, after having been the wife of two men, was sent back home to her father's house, ostensibly to wait for Sheila to grow up. But when Sheila grew up, Tamar would see Sheila out at the club. He was young and single and loved to mingle but neither Sheila nor Judah ever called her for the wedding. Now time was passing. Tamar's childbearing years were going by and she didn't have a husband. Tamar wanted a pilot and some passengers for her plane. She was keeping the plane in good mechanical condition, but she needed a pilot to do some flying. None was forthcoming, so she waited. Then a sad event occurred as Genesis 38, 12, and 13 records. Now in the process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died. And Judah was comforted, and he went up to his sheep shearers at Timnah, he and his friend Hira the Abdulamite. And it was told to Tamar, saying, Look, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. Now, generally speaking, wives didn't go on sheep shearing expeditions with their husbands. The men went to work, and the wives stayed home and took care of the house and children. <clears throat> now, generally speaking, the schedule for commercial air travel calls for turnaround trips, meaning 
that when pilots fly planes to other airports other than the plane's home base, the mechanic at the home base is supposed to certify that the plane can both make the trip and return home. However, in certain cases, a pilot might decide to call a mechanic from the other airport to check out the plane and fix it. And there are mechanics available at every airport. Now, Judah is going to the airport at Timna, and Tamar knows that he just lost his mechanic, and Judah's plane may be in need of some repair. So Tamar gets her tools together and decides to go meet Judah. Genesis 38 and 14 records, So Tamar took off her widow's garments, covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself, and sat in an open place which was on the way to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown, and she was not given to him as a wife. Now Tamar needs to have a conversation with Judah, because Judah owes her a husband and some children. So she decided to meet him on the road to discuss matters. However, both Judah and Tamar actually had a different kind of discussion in mind. Genesis 38, 15 and 16 records, When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot because she had covered her face. Then he turned to her by the way and said, Please let me come into you for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. Well, Tamar went there for a conversation, but maybe this situation will work out better. She needed a man. She wanted children. She was pledged to be married, but her husband was not forthcoming, and her husband's father was coming on to her. Maybe I can kill two birds with one stone, Tamar thought. So she decided to go along with the program. But she was smart enough to cover her bases, as Genesis 38, 16 and 18 records. So Tamar said, what will you give me that you may come into me? And Judah said, I will send you a young goat from the flock. So Tamar said, will you give me a pledge until you send it? Then Judah said, what pledge shall I give you? So Tamar said, your signet and cord and the staff that is in your hand. Then Judah gave them to Tamar and went into her, and Tamar conceived by Judah. So Tamar arose and went away and laid aside her veil and put on the garments of her widowhood. Now this is really an interesting setup as far as Tamar is concerned. Judah is supposed to provide a husband for Tamar so that she can have children and a family. But Judah isn't giving Sheila to Tamar. So Tamar lets Judah take Sheila's place and give her the children that she wants to have himself. And she seduces Judah into identifying himself as the father of her child. A signet is a small official seal for legal documents. A person's signet is personal to them. And now Tamar has Judah's signet. However, this is not exactly the way God planned for the situation to occur. But just like in the garden, when we sin, we have to prepare for some unexpected consequences. Judah didn't really want anything to do with Tamar since he had lost two sons that had been married to her. But the fellow without the comfort of a wife is subject to forget that which the Lord tells him to do. Genesis 2.18 tells us, and the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. 
And Genesis 2.18 says that for a reason. Genesis 2.18 says that it is not good for a man to be alone because it is not good for a man to be alone. Sooner or later, every plane needs a mechanic. And so now that Judah has had his engine tuned up, he flies to Timnah, shears his sheep, and brings the wool back home. And when he gets home, oh, by the way, he has a little matter to which he must attend. He has to pay his mechanic and get his signet back. Genesis 38, 23 records, and Judah sent the young goat by the friend of, by the friend of it, by the hand of his friend, the Abdulamite, to receive his pledge from the woman's hand, but he did not find her. Then the Abdulamite asked the men of that place, saying, Where is the harlot who was openly by the roadside? And they said, There was no harlot in this place. So the Abdulamite returned to Judah and said, I cannot find her. Also the men of the place said that there was no harlot in this place. Then Judah said, Let her take the signet to court and the staff for herself, lest we be shamed. For I sent this young goat, and you have not found her. Well, now this is strange. There was a harlot in the place the day I was there, said Judah to himself. Well, I've done my part. If she ever shows up with my signet, I'll give her a goat. But hey, what was I supposed to do? I have witnesses to it. Well, Judah, you sort of did what you were supposed to do. You weren't really supposed to deny your daughter-in-law a husband, but you did that. You weren't really supposed to go into harlots, but you did that. You were supposed to pay your bills and you did that, but don't let the fact that you paid a prostitute for sex make you think that you are some type of righteous person. You are paying for doing something that you ought not do. First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6 through 12 tells us, now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted and do not become idolaters as were some of them as it is written the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did and in one day 23,000 fed nor let us tempt Christ as some of them were also tempted and were destroyed by serpents, nor complain as some of them complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written down for our admonition upon whom the end of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Now, verses 7 and 8 of this passage speak directly to that which Judah did. Prostitution was originally designed as part of idol worship. And in places like Corinth, each idol's temple was accompanied by that which we would call a house of ill repute, in which rather than making donation, men paid their tithes to the ritual prostitutes in return for sexual intercourse, which was their act of worship. And if you didn't know that, maybe now you realize why the Israelites were so easily seduced into idolatry and why God hates idolatry so much. 
And that's what Judah thought he was doing with the harlot by the side of the road. Going into ritual harlots is the practice of, as part of the practice of idolatry, and the goat was to be sacrificed to an idol god. So Judah can't claim righteousness for making a donation to an idol god. Isaiah 64 and 6 tells us, but we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, has have taken us away. And Judah will eventually have to face his iniquity. But in the meantime, Genesis 38 and 24 tells us, and it came to pass about three months after that Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has played the harlot. Furthermore, she is with child by harlotry. So Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. Finally, Judah said to himself, I can get rid of this woman that has been hanging over my head to kill my last son. I know that I was supposed to give Sheila to her, but I didn't want him to die. Now I finally have a solution to my problem, and the Lord gave it to me. I can cover up my sin and use the Bible to judge hers. But Jesus tells us in Luke 6:37, judge not and you shall not be judged. Condemn not and you shall not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. And it is always bad when we use the Bible to condemn others. John 3:17 tells us for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. God does not give us his divinely inspired word to condemn others, but to show them the error of their ways so that they might be saved. But we forget and allow our arrogance to lead us away from Christ and from the personal purity into the judgment of others because it is far easier and more satisfying to point out the sins of others than to look at our own. But Judah, as the father-in-law, has it within his rights to judge Tamar, and Tamar does not protest Judah's judgment. Not at all. See, she just sends Judah a message. Genesis 38.25 records, when she was brought out, she sent to her father-in-law, saying, By the man to whom these belong, I am with child. And she said, Please determine who these are, the signet and cord and staff. Now in John chapter 8, the Pharisees asked Jesus if they should stone an adulteress, just as Judah wanted to burn Tamar for adultery. And in John chapter 8, verse 7, so when they continued asking Jesus, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. Tamar simply says, I have sinned. Am I the only one? And Judah found himself having to admit that he has no justification for judging Tamar as he sinned against her first. Genesis 38 and 26 records, so Judah acknowledged them and said, She has been more righteous than I, because I did not give her to Sheila, my son. And he never knew her again. 
And Jesus has come to tell us <clears throat> that we are all as an unclean thing and all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags in the sight of God. But God has chosen to forgive all of our sins. All of our sins were paid for by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary, in which he suffered, bled, and died so that our sins, though they may be many, might be forgiven. And Jesus commands us to put our self-righteous feelings aside, forgive one another, and love one another, even as the Lord has forgiven us. No, this is not a suggestion. This is a command. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 18, verse 23 through 25, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat saying, pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him saying, have patience with me and I will pay you all. And he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. And then the Bible says, so my heavenly father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother, his trespasses. John 3, 16 and 17 tells us, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So let us forgive and let us love one another as Christ has loved us. And that is our lesson for today. Let us pray. Jesus God, our Father, we thank you this morning for this lesson and we thank you for the example of the sin of Judah and the sin of Tamar and help us to recognize that you told us in your word that all have sinned and that all fall short of the glory of God and that we don't really have any reason or any justification for looking down on anyone else because the only reason that we are saved from sin, death, hell, and the grave 
is because of what you did on Calvary's cross. Help us to recognize that it is not because of the works of righteousness that we have done, but that it is because your grace that we are saved and help us, Lord, that we might forgive one another and love one another, even as you have loved and forgiven us. And now, Lord, we thank you for all that are in the house today. And we ask you that you would give us traveling mercies as we go down from this place and then bring us back once again at the appointed time. And now, Lord, we thank you for all these things. We thank you for your goodness, for your mercy, and for your grace. And most of all, we thank you for your sacrifice on the cross, for rising from the dead on that Sunday. Thank you, Lord. In the wonderful name of Jesus, we pray. Thank you for listening. We hope you were blessed by this presentation. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com.